This podcast is strictly for mature listeners. So if you're under the legal drinking age, you are not permitted to listen under UK law. If you would prefer not to hear conversations about alcohol, you may want to listen to something else. But if that's not you, stay with us for Bar Fabric Presents. Hello and welcome to Bar Fabric Presents, a podcast brought to you by the Brown Foreman Advocacy Team. Each episode, you'll hear from our team of ambassadors as we share stories about the brands we're proud to represent and the people who've inspired us along the way. I'm Ali Didienko, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to this episode of Bar Fabric Presents. In every episode, you'll hear from one of the team defending drinks that either have a bad rep or are overlooked in a segment called You're Wrong About. Later, we have a very special guest joining us, Ileana Leal, sales director for Brown Foreman UK, will be stating her case for Cristalina, a drink adored in Mexico, but lacking love here in the UK. You'll also hear, how'd you get that job? Where an industry expert will delve into the details of their career and give tips on how to get a job in their profession. In this episode, you'll hear the second part of how do you get that job with Renee Charles, social media producer and radio plugger at Silver Music Entertainment. She'll be talking to Charlotte about the transferable skills she gained from working in a bar. In four more bars, Joseph will be talking to experts in the arts about their favorite songs in hospitality. If you're like me, you may not realize how much thought goes into the music played in your favorite bars or restaurants. In this episode, you'll hear the second part with John Nickel, who's the resident pianist at the American Bar at the Savoy. And to round off the episode, Cam will be talking about the importance of storytelling. A lot of interesting bits to get through. But first, you're wrong about. Hola, everyone. I'm Eliana Leal. You probably noticed my lovely accent already. Yes, I'm from Mexico. And today I want to talk about tequila cristalino, and why you are wrong about it. But first things first, what is a cristalino? Well, tequila cristalino is an aged tequila, usually an añejo, but it could be anywhere from a reposado to an extra añejo, that is filtered with activated charcoal. This process removes its color and some of the woodier notes, so the result is a clear tequila, similar to a blanco. They say the art in making Cristalino is in retaining the complexity, the flavor of crisp agave, vanilla and caramel notes, and the aroma profile of a barrel-aged tequila, but crystal clear. And to be crystal clear, no pun intended, the Consejo Regulador del Tequila, which is the industry regulatory entity in Mexico, has not yet officially recognized tequila Cristalino as a tequila category. So at least at the time of this recording, tequila cristalino is still kind of a category. However, producers must demonstrate that tequila actually went through a state of maturation in oak barrels, specify the color removal process, demonstrating that the product after this process maintains maturation characteristics. This is what ensures cristalino is different from blanco. And you may ask, is Cristalino a good thing then? I absolutely think it is. Tequila is a very traditional spirit, and I understand that many tequila aficionados do not like Cristalinos. But this variant is not trying to change tequila into something it is not. 
I would say it's just another facet of this beautiful spirit. And if anything, tequila cristalino is great for breaking the stigma that tequila is very strong, and it actually helps educate the senses for more complex tequila. In addition, this is probably the most versatile tequila. It is the easiest sipping tequila, and you can prepare a fantastic variety of cocktails with a cristalino. You get the flavors and the complexity of an aged tequila in a clear liquid that won't change the colors of your cocktails. Pretty cool, huh? And the best part is your customers will like it. I know what you're about to say. Ileana, you're Mexican. How can you stray the path of righteous tequila? Let me tell you. Cristalino is the fastest growing tequila variant in Mexico. And it has actually made tequila the largest spirit category in Mexico, profoundly shifting its consumption to more than 50% female and broadening tequila's appeal to younger LDA consumers. In other words, we Mexicans love Cristalino. We love it and drink it in cocktails or neat, pre-dinner, during dinner, or on a night out. If we drink it, maybe you should give it a chance to. My advice for you, and I'm still talking about tequila, is get a good one. Take Tequila Herradura Ultra, for example. If you like tequila, or you consider yourself a tequila connoisseur, you must know Tequila Herradura. It's one of the most traditional and well-established tequila brands in Mexico. So you can trust the quality is up there already. And Herradura Ultra is made with some of the finest liquids that Casa Herradura makes. It's a blend of Añejo and an extra Añejo that has been aged 49 months and slightly sweetened with a drop of agave nectar, just to give it that extra aroma and taste. Have it neat, have it in a Tommy's Margarita, or simply on the rocks. Give it a try and thank me later. Thanks to Ileana for her impassioned defense of Cristalino. Don't let the scandal surrounding agave blind you from this hidden Mexican gem. When we talk about skills, I feel like you learn them from so many different people. You just learn on the job. Is there anyone kind of through your career that you would say has had like a major influence on you or someone who kind of created a, a core memory that you kind of take with you through your day to day? I'm going to be cringe and shout out Josh Ryan. My boss. Shout out Josh Ryan. Shout out Josh. But yeah, I think he's been very influential on my career because he loves to throw me in the deep end. <gasps> sometimes that's the best though. <laughs> no, it, it is. It's good. And I think when you like, not that I struggle with confidence, but sometimes when you wouldn't put yourself forward for things or you wouldn't think you can do it, mm -hmm. it's nice to have someone who knows you can yeah. and just like be like, yeah, Ren, do that. You can do it. And when you do it, it's done. And you're like, wow, okay, come on then. Yeah, yeah. I'm always like, I'm such a, I won't say I'm a panicker. And I tend to kind of like hype things up in my head and think about all of the scenarios. I feel you. Yeah, every possible outcome. And it's always bad ones, isn't there's it? All, there's never a good outcome yeah. in my brain. Yeah. <laughs> but then when I actually do it and hype myself up and kind of get through it, I'm like, oh, that was relatively easy. And you feel or stupid, I don't really you? really enjoyed it. Yeah, you're like, why did I waste all that energy? I know. And yeah. It's so bad. And then the next time I do it, I'm like, if it's like a tasting with like influential people who I'm a bit nervous of or something like that I'm kind of like you've done this before 
everything's yeah. going to be fine. People and it's so good. Like, I think the more you do something, it's like, okay, you've got more experiences to look back on and be like, I've done this. Like, yeah. stop freaking yourself out. I'm the same with DJ and like, at the beginning, like every set, because I'd never played to people mm-hmm. before. And when I started playing, it was like, you know that period of time where it was a table of six and yeah. you could sit down, but you couldn't stand up and dance, but you could drink. <gasps> yeah. But, yeah. So like I did one of those events. I think I did two of those events actually. And then they they went well, mm-hmm. but it's a completely different vibe when you're playing to people in a packed room who are standing up. Yeah. You can come and speak to you. Who like, are all like looking at you oh as well. Oh my gosh. So then... That made me really nervous for my first event that was like that. Mm-hmm. But then now I've done a few of those. It's like, okay, cool. Right, now you're this. like, yeah. Water off the duck's back. Yeah, now I'm a swan. Now you're a swan. <laughs> See, it's also relevant. <laughs> so when you're DJing, do you ever find, because um, something that I think links into kind of what we do as ambassadors, yeah. is that when we talk to people or like when I'll talk about myself, when I talk to people, I kind of, assess the vibe and Mm. the level of knowledge that they have kind of I try and do it kind of in the first minute or two of speaking to them yeah and sometimes I'll just ask questions or sometimes it's kind of like taking cues from the back bar or from their menu Mm. um or finding out how long someone's been working there and then from that I can assess what level of knowledge that I'm going to give them Okay. So it it depends, like sometimes we go through like the basics of Scotch whiskey and the, a bit of history about that. Or sometimes we can like dive into, you know, distillation and what temperature still gets to and yeah. all of that kind of thing. So when you DJ, do you find that you kind of are constantly assessing the room to see what to play and what to kind of yeah. give them? I think that's, yeah, that's definitely like a big skill as a DJ. I think mm-hmm. it's like something that's underestimated because you can just play tunes and know how to do the technical stuff. But like being put in a room and yeah, like seeing what the energy's like, what people want, like that's such a big skill. Yeah. Um, I think also, I always talk about this, like comes down to what kind of DJ you want to be. Mm-hmm. So like there are DJs in clubs where they're there to play exactly what people want, like requests, like yeah, play. Yeah. Like if you haven't got, I don't know. Beyonce, they're fuming. Do you know what I mean? Crazy yeah. in love, play that right now. And then I think there's another DJ where it's like, you're more respected for your taste and like yeah. people come to hear what you want to play. So they're not going to know every song. They're not there to like sing along. They're there to like, it's like an experience more. Yeah. And I think that's what I want to go towards. I want to be that kind of DJ. It's like a journey of discovery for people, isn't it? Like, Definitely. I think there's, it's such a huge skill. Mm. Mm. I always think like, and it also links back to, bars I suppose that skill of being able to yeah um not only with like DJs and stuff like that but being able to like assess someone over the bar and whether it's kind of assessing whether you know they should be in the venue for like security reason or whether it's even just helping them choose a drink I think something that is quite interesting probably and similar between our jobs is and similar to working in bars is that it's not the normal nine to five. Mm, definitely. It's definitely not the nine <laughs> to five. Definitely not it? the nine to five. <laughs> yeah. um, but I wonder what does, and we've kind of talked about what a day looks like for you. Yeah. I don't know if, if you are the same as me, but during lockdown and stuff, especially, I found such a struggle of being able to like separate work from home. Yeah. Proper. So bad. Because yeah. it's like, okay, I've closed my laptop but and it's 9 p.m. Yeah. <laughs> And you're like, oh, I could just finish that off. Or yeah. like, oh. It's all the little bits that you yeah. kind of, that take up so long. Mm. But I feel like 
almost in the last few years, something has switched with people. Um, mm. I feel like people are very much more towards like a work-life balance, I suppose. And I think that's so good. Would you kind of personally say that you maintain like a work-life balance? Oh, I think one thing for me is turning off notifications on my phone. <gasps> yes. So like on, like on your phone, you can have the notifications come up, but not see what they are. So, so ah, do you know what I mean? So, yeah, like, you know, yeah. the little preview. I have that off now because, like, say you see an email or like a text and it's got you thinking, like, you're like, your mind's already thinking about it and what you're going to say and yeah. how you're going to react. So, I think having that off and being able to, like, decide when I check that is a big key for me. That's such a good idea. Yeah. Because you can set it, can't you? So, it just says, like, Instagram notification. Literally, Instagram, I have it completely off. I'm yeah. Like, no. I bet every social media manager or producer that I know yeah. is like I cannot have notifications on. You should be pinging off you know yeah. what I mean yeah. Especially then, if you've got like multiple accounts and stuff like that. It's that like boundary isn't it setting them firm boundaries yeah. and like even like Gmail so it will pop up but like you won't see like who it's from or yeah. yeah. Um, earlier we were talking about kind of assessing people and how I assess people's whiskey knowledge and you assess especially when you're DJing or assessing the mood and the vibe and the dance levels. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the skills. The skills. The dance skills. If they're bad, cut. Yeah, just turn the music off. Get out. Get you need to leave now. Yeah. <laughs> Failed the vibe check. Um, so can you kind of relate that into clients in your, I suppose, I don't want to call it a day job, but can you relate yeah. it into kind of radio plugging or working in social media? Do you use those same skills of assessment that you would have used in the bar or that you yeah. would use in DJ? Definitely. I think um, when people are getting in touch with us to inquire about maybe um, a consultation mm -hmm. or about radio plug-in, everyone has a different kind of level of knowledge and mm -hmm. everyone, you can never underestimate kind of what people know. So it's kind of that balance of not being patronising, yeah. but also knowing, do I need to explain this a bit more yeah. or do I just say it? how I would off the like cuff. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I think that's a big skill because you never want to patronise anyone. You never want to like make someone feel like they're stupid. Yeah, or but... that you think they're stupid. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> more it, isn't it? <laughs> you never want to do that. But then you also kind of need to get all the information across and like all the details across. Yeah. So yeah, I think, I think it's also easier to do that in real life. You know what you were saying about you can kind of suss their vibes and the things around you. Yeah, and I think working out people's body language as well, like, is such a huge... I mean, obviously, we just learn how to do that as human beings. Yeah. But I always find that with people who maybe have a bit of, like, a bravado or maybe they want to sound like they know more. Like, everyone knows those people, don't they? Yeah. And I'm always kind of like, I can tell by your body language that you're not sure. Yeah, literally. So, uh, for me, I'm going to clarify it. I don't know a huge amount about radio plugging, if you can't tell. <laughs> um, but I wonder, do you, do you ever get people who just are like, what, what is it? Yeah, like, I didn't know what it was before I started doing it. No. I had never heard of it before. And I think there are so many jobs in, like, the music industry and, like, the fashion industry. And even, like, I feel like people don't know your job exists. Do you know what no, I mean? Like they don't. But, yeah, people are definitely, like, people will inquire. I even get people sending us music and being like, oh, will you play it? And I'm like, oh, we're not the radio. Uh, we give it to radio. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. In terms of um, kind of multitasking and yeah. doing things like that, obviously your job is 
huge different things all the time. Yeah. Spin a lot of plates. <laughs> <laughs> um, is there anything that you do to kind of help you prioritise or anything like that? I always find like working on bars and working in kind of different industries, you have to have a way of like, okay, this comes first, this is most important, or like these cocktails are the most important to make right yeah. now. Yeah. That is, I'd never thought about that, actually, like, prioritising, because I definitely learned that on the bar, like... Yeah. Especially when it's busy, mm-hmm. like, having to... Because you have to keep everything tidy, you have to clean things as you're using them, yeah. you have to, like, serve this customer, and some things are quicker to make than others, so it's mm-hmm. like, which should I go first? So I think that's definitely helped me in life. Um, I'm a proper list person. <gasps> me too. So, like, in my head, I think I'll be making lists, like, on the bar, for yeah. example. Like, okay, I'm going to do that, that, and then that. It's like you personal running commentary oh like that voice in your head isn't it yeah but now obviously like it's a different kind of role so it's easy I can actually write a list so I'll like block things up and be like okay this is what I'm going to do first and have to actually cross it out and yeah tick it or something do you know what I mean it's like visual cues so I think listing things off and yeah I have a friend who um talks about um a theory called eat the frog Oh, you're coming with all these animal <laughs> theories. I'm loving them. <laughs> I don't know why this is so animal themed, yes. but it is. <laughs> the animals. What have I mentioned so far? A swan, a duck, and now a frog. Yeah. Yeah. So eating the frog is basically you do the hardest task first, mm. which I'm quite bad at implementing because I'm usually like, that can wait until later. I'll Me do all as these well. tiny tasks first. Yeah. And I also kind of cheat at to do lists because I always write one thing on that I've already done. <laughs> Right, so I'll think of something. Just to, big ma- just to make myself feel good, you know. Um, we mentioned before someone who's been quite influential yeah. in your path, um, Josh. So yeah. um, I just wanted to ask, how did you meet? Um, I bet it's a good story. It is. So I met Josh through Marley and I felt like my whole life just centres around going out and being out and having a big <laughs> mouth and talking to people but I met Marley when I was like seven, well, 18 right yeah when I was 18 and I was out in this club and we just met like him and his friend Carty and they own this studio actually funny enough um, so yeah was friends with Marley for a while and then like had known about Josh and like Marley mentioned me to Josh and we just knew about each other but had never met in real life mm-hmm. had spoken on the phone but that's it right and were, then, you, were you in social media and radio and DJ no. by that point were you just so I just graduated well I'd been at uni when I was friends with Marley and stuff mm-hmm. and then I graduated and then there was talks about like potentially working with Marley and Josh um and I was just working in customer service right um and then I was on a night out in Liverpool bringing it back yes and I was in this club called Pure <laughs> a messy one and Josh was there, but we never met in real life. But I'd seen like a photo or whatever, like through like no socials and stuff. And I was like, Josh. And he was like, Rene. And then it was like mental. And that was it. What a small world. Such a small world. And Amari was also there, who's on our team. So yeah, it was such a random meeting. You know, when you do not expect it. Yeah. And then now we work together. Oh, yeah. I love that. By chance. No, and then literally, the rest is history. The rest is history. It's mad, isn't it? And it's funny how it all revolves around going out. I feel like that's very much my life. Like, yeah. just meeting people when you're out. You don't. You can't underestimate that, I don't think. No, like, I don't know. think you can. Because I think it brings, like, especially when you work in bars, it brings such a sense of, like, community to it. Mm. And then you find, like, obviously everyone has, like, their favourite bars and you get to know the bartenders and you get to know the people in there. Definitely. Um, like, you chatting to the old the ladies old, and old men who yeah. came in. 
I love it. Yeah, you have your regulars. I love a regular. Yeah, me too. They feel like they're your friends. And you're like, oh my gosh, you're here again. There used to be this one man and he loved a margarita. He'd come in and do like a Sunday morning bar crawl, right? <laughs> Around like this part of Liverpool. So he'd come in and he was the only person who was ever allowed to like claim their second drink later. But it was like an unwritten rule. Like this man would come in and like, he'd say like, buy two for margaritas for like seven pounds. Mm-hmm. And then get one, go to another bar and then come back about two hours later and get a second. Love that. Yeah, he was cool. Little margarita crawl. That sounds fun. <laughs> On a Sunday morning. Gorgeous. Intense. Yeah. I could listen to Charlotte and Renee all day. What great energy. I hope we can all agree that getting a start behind the bar prepares you for anything. Hello, this is Four More Bars, a segment dedicated to the best music in hospitality, where I will be thrusting myself completely out of my depth by speaking to experts in the musical arts. John Nickel is with me here. He is a composer, singer and resident pianist at the American Bar at the Savoy, which brings us sort of rather neatly to the next question, which is a song that reminds you of your first time working within venues. I wonder what you're going to say then. Something that reminds me of my first time working in venues. And um, in your capacity. In my capacity. I'm trying to think which one. Oh, it was um, Frank Sinatra as time goes by. Oh, God. I'm so sorry, buddy. Yep. No problem. Of course, I was working late last night. So uh, forgive my uh, slightly pedestrian. No, I'm, I'm the one with the notes. John is sat here with nothing. This is all off the dome. Yeah, there's, and also what Jojo hasn't told you, there's 6,000 people staring at me. I'm, I'm, <laughs> we're in St. Paul's Cathedral. It's slightly strange. Um, um, yeah, this is this this is a bit this is a bit of a tribute to a guy who passed away about a year ago, a chap called Salim Corey, who was the um, head bartender, and then I get, I get confused by the terminology, but he was like the American bar manager, I think, and he would be, he was in that place for thirty seven years. So when I when I started in the American bar, I was about god twenty two or something, um, very much out of my comfort zone, you know, very 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 out of my depth and he is a Lebanese fellow who'd been there already by that time Christ he'd been there for 28 years or something and he was an absolute gentleman a legend in the drinks in the uh, in the in the cocktail world um very interestingly enough Salim was a kind of titan of the cocktail world kind of pre-social media so it was a very strange it was um well, the hotel closed refurbishment in 20, 2008 and then opened mm. up in 2010 and the universe changed hugely in that bar in those two and a half years because up up until when I started playing in the hotel up until it closed in 2008, um, <clears throat> social media wasn't a thing. So there wasn't really a big community of um, mixologists or industry folk really coming in. People would come in and take photos of Salim, rare, occasionally, and lots of old school people kind of, you know, made a fuss of him. But there wasn't that big com- hive community that there is now. And he'd been, fl- you know, he came from an- another era, really. He'd been flown around the world and would give lectures on on um, the cocktails he'd invented and his career. Uh, but despite all that, he was an incredibly charming, very open, 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 friendly, sunny, warm, supportive, loving guy to me. And he, the only thing he'd ever asked me to do was he'd say, Johnny, Johnny, is it time? And I'd, I'd play this song as time goes by for him. It was like a, it was like his song. And so I picked as time goes by. I think I've got Frank Sinatra singing it on the playlist uh, for this podcast. You have. Um, and yeah, it transforms me back to, yeah, to him and to the special vibe of that place. And, and also, again, as time goes by is a real... You know, American songbook, jazz age kind of thing, because it was used in the movie Casablanca. 
in, in a very famous bar scene. And so it's, it's just it's just a perfect kind of fusion of worlds in my mind. So I dedicate it to Salim Corey and to to the American bar and, yeah, and the Savoy and, and to all the great hotel bars, really. Yeah. It does feel like that. It evokes, again, this sort of warm, nostalgic, candlelit, yeah. um, timeless environment. Yeah. It makes sense that it might take you back as well. That's a really lovely story. Um, did I you ever meet Salim? Did you meet Salim? No, 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 right. I did. Um, but yeah, I remember, I remember uh, um, the day that he died, there was a lot of noise and um, people paying really lovely tributes, yeah. saying similar things to what you said, I suppose. Yeah, he was a, a fascinating character too, because he just didn't exist on social media in, in the way that people even, well, even, I mean, there are people, he, he has contemporaries who very much do, but he just didn't. Um, and so he was, I hesitate to say he was old school. He just, he had his own style and didn't seem at all concerned about kind of preserving or kind of promoting any kind of presence online at all. I think he, he genuinely, he came from another generation where I just don't think he saw, I, I don't think it even entered into his mind to do that, which I personally, I, I, I kind of admire actually. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, but but it really was that I, I don't think it's been discussed that much before. But the the role in mobile phones and social media, it certainly from from from, my, from the piano piano eyed view, in a bar like the American bar, has it, it just literally changed things to an extraordinary degree very very quickly. That you know that bartenders would know when other bartenders were in town. That kind of stuff just didn't happen before. Well, two thousand ten is when I really first noticed it. Yeah, I mean, I think so often when people talk about social media and its effects and stuff, mm. there's generally kind of a negative light. You mm. know, it can be uh, detrimental to mental health and all that kind yeah. of thing. People spending too much time and um, putting too much weight on it. But the way that mm. you've described it there actually sounds kind of nice. The way that it might I would say that in some and... respects, actually, it's not just social media. It'd be down to, I'd say, also Eric Lawrence, Declan McGurk and Daniel, um, who's now um, the boss at Glen Eagles. And I can never say his surname, so I'm not going to. Oh, yeah, I'm not going to try either. Yeah, but those guys, Eric, Derek, Declan and Daniel um, and social media, those things, very, the American bar, to a certain extent, and it's, it's a very tiny message because it's not currently open and, uh, you know, it's obviously a slightly, slightly strange time for me in that respect. But if I had the guts to, what I would say to perhaps people who were, uh, had their hands on the range, that to a certain extent, the American bar has always taken care of itself. But, you know, it's it's bigger than the sum of its parts. It really is. And it goes through these, you know, world wars and, you know, uh, God knows, international crises, domestic crises, whatever. Things close to home go awry. But the American bar kind of takes care of itself. But having said that, it, from 2010 onwards, the affection and just the respect that those guys I, I've just mentioned um, and the, the, the drinks community, the wider drinks community, gave that bar in terms of suddenly existing on like, the competition stage. Um, was a real thrill to see, you know, because everyone who went in that bar knew it was special. It was just amazing to see it being, in a very proactive way, looked yeah. after. And I hope that that happens in the next chapter, you know, that, that we're waiting to kick off again. Yeah, I suppose, you know, more than any other place, I feel like I'm not worried about it. And it is testament yeah. to the place, you know, the alumni and um, and then the tenure of people like Salim and like yourself. Well, thanks, buddy. There's something distinctly Savoy about that, which... I suppose neatly ties into the next and final song, which is a song for a venue that you'd like to shout out. Yes, it's um, it's all bar one. In, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's I, I it, when Declan and Eric were the, back in the uh, in the American bar, they did a launched a, a menu. I guess this would probably be now um, something like 
2018, maybe 20, 2018, 2019. It was a Savoy songbook, and the, the the idea was to to pair drinks in the menu with 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 music, and then eventually we recorded an album. So I recorded an album uh, with songs that were represented as drinks in the menus. There was a Christ, I can't possibly remember now, but 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 anyway, I, I I was asked to write one song, so I wrote a song called The American Bar, which was, and there was a drink. I, believe there's a drink called the American Bar. Um but anyway, this I recorded the song. I wrote a song about the American Bar. Um and uh yeah, so I played that well I haven't played it for a while because I'm not in the American Bar, but it's it's a it's become a a, a song that I'm con- a song of my own that I'm comfortable to play. Which is quite weird because I I as you did mention before I am a songwriter, but uh, I always feel slight you know, you have to catch me on the right night for, for me to do that because it's kind of I have written things that I, I I hope would slip under the radar, and if you weren't paying too much attention, would sound like a a song from the forties or fifties, perhaps that you didn't weren't aware of. But it's I yeah I I don't know. I always feel a bit a bit weird about doing my own stuff in 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 a place like that. I don't know why. But the American Bar is a song that I'm I'm at peace with playing because it's very much in that cocktail age genre, and it's not too um you know it's not it's not self congratulatory in any way. It's just a nice little ditty about the American Bar. But yeah. Um, it's a song that I do I do play in, in the and, I, and I'm such a uh, um, a tart that I will change the name of it and play in any venue, provided you give me two thousand pounds. I'll <laughs> perform that anywhere. KFC. There's <laughs> a bargain. What the same lyrics of Covent Garden? Just a few minor, you know. Get ready to dream. Yeah, family bucket. You know, <laughs> that's got a curious rhyme that line. But I do. Yeah, no, I, I'm up for that. Okay, all right, that's good to know. Um, everyone knows that now. Yes. Um, I think it's brilliant. I remember you playing it in there. In fact, I remember... Do you really? Being, honestly? Yeah, yeah. Honestly, I what do. And I'll tell you why. Mm. Um, because I was sat in front of Pippa um, at that point, and I'm fairly sure that there was an extra verse that's not in here where you the mentioned individual... <laughs> that's the one. Uh, where you mentioned individual no, yeah, members so, of staff. Sometimes, no, depending on who was on that night, I would I would whack, whack in, insert a name into the thing. Yeah, into... Uh, into the chorus, I'd say so and so's behind the bar shaking a drink, or whatever. Yeah, so whoever, so was, whoever was there, I'd, I'd if I if I thought they deserved my respect, I'd mention their name, and some of them really hated it, and I'd do it more than. Yeah, of course. Yeah, because they're being cool in front of their mixology friends, and then I suppose it's really naff to have the, the idiot behind the piano saying your name over and over again, <laughs> louder and louder. The more you dislike it. Oh, yeah. for me, more the better. Yeah, 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 I'm like that. Yeah. Next time I'm in. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's really fun. And yeah, I mean, this coincided with a period in time where the American Bar was doing quite a lot around the world. Yeah, um, yeah. And they were bringing you along to these... Th- I say bringing you along like you were some sort in of... In a cage. You were- yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like, the, like the Natural History Museum, you know, take take Egyptian obelisks on tour. I was like that, <laughs> yeah, interred in a, in a case. No, that's right, we did it, we did it. We did it. See, Declan, Declan and Eric and Pippa were, were great. And then Martin Hudak, of course, and... It was a wonderful, wonderful time, and it hadn't happened before, and isn't happening right now. So maybe that won't happen again for a while. But it was a really magical time, and Declan was always really, really, Declan McGurk was always really, really, um, very, very kind in, in, you know, dragging me into these things. And so yeah, we did a thing in, at the Manhattan Bar in Singapore, and we did quite a few bar shows. So we were in Oslo, we did Athens at Clumsy's, I think, uh, which was a wild night. Yeah. Declan used to like to take me along, really. Cause just I remember one occasion uh, at Gatwick Airport, I just had to go to the toilet, and uh, it, it, a slightly longer toilet visit than than your, you know, than a shorter one. It was a, yeah, it, it was a, it was. I had to go to the toilet and attend sure. to some 
some business. And uh, the moment I got into the toilet, uh, shut the cubicle door and sat down, the messages from Declan came on, we're boarding. <laughs> we're boarding. Uh, I ignored it, but I felt a little bit uncomfortable about it. Then he said, no, Jesus Christ, we're, board we're boarding. You've got to come right now. And I, I, I couldn't go right now. Uh, and then anyway, but I, I did all I could to um, to uh, complete the um, mission and uh, did run out of that bathroom very, very quickly to find Declan drinking a beer, laughing. <laughs> And uh, and I never forgave him for that. So that's why he got involved on these international trips. But yeah, we should take the Savoy on the road. And it was it was a genius idea, really, because I suppose by having the music there, you're, it is a genuine kind of tour, isn't it? You've got the kind of obviously the tastes of a place, but you've also got the the sound. And I yeah, I, luckily I got to do some great trips through that. I used to bring my playlists from Satan's Whiskers with me. Yeah, and you know that was that was an important part of the whole cell. I it suppose. makes you feel like you're but, at home, doesn't it? And yeah, I mean, yeah, you can't compare to like the actual music, the same that you will get, the same live music that you hear there. I think that was just such a touch. Oh yeah, and uh, yeah, I was I was very pleased for you and them. I, I loved really it. I really hope it. I really hope. I, God, I mean, you know, hopefully international travel is going to reopen again this year, and uh, I've really missed. I, as I did say, I am a slightly jittery traveller, actually, but I, I've really missed, you know, that lovely thing when you've travelled a lot and you, you're just sitting there walking along, you're sitting down one day or you're walking along a road and you suddenly have a flashback to a, a 2 a.m. beer or something in a bar in, in New York uh, or whatever. And mm. Well, that's the other place we did. We went to New... What did we do in America? Yeah, we did, we did, we did a thing in New York, too. Um, I can't remember the name of the bar now. But, um, yeah, you, you get to get a flashback of, of being in a lobby at 2 a.m. or something or 4 a.m. And it's just... Those things really make life rich, don't they? Oh, that was exactly the word I was going to use. Yeah. That is, those are real riches. They really are, man. And it, it's, it's, um, and you know, I think sometimes you know these things often invo often involve a, you know, Christ, a four a.m. wake up and a, you know, you you haven't had sleep for two days and you you know you're kind of apologising to your loved ones that you're going away again and yeah, but it's it's that the pay dirt you get is 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 those four a.m. beers when it's all worked out okay and no one's died and it's and it's been a success and it's like. This is great. I'm so privileged. And they're all when you're having a chat with someone on the airplane, what are you doing? You say, Well, I'm I'm just I'm I'm working with the bar and I'm kind of and you can see them thinking, Christ, that's your job. Yeah, imagine that. Yeah. I have one final question about this yeah. song. Your American accent. Yes. I well, strange enough, I there are some musicians out there who do who do sing the, the that kind of stuff with an English accent. And I, I really find it very if I was going to sing the American bar song with an English accent, it would sound a bit like this. Walk around Covent Garden, take a stroll by the Thames. I, I <laughs> so can't warbling. Do. Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah, it, that wouldn't necessarily have to happen with a warble. But I, I just, I so I, I, it's really weird. I, I can't help but sing songs in that genre with a, and a bit of an American twang. Um, it just really sticks in my craw if I don't. And there are guys who do, who are real purists who refuse to, you know, we'll sing it in a very anglicised voice. I just, I just, yeah, I can't do that. No, it feels appropriate. I'm a bit of a chameleon. And it I is do. really good. I just knew there would be some sort of uh, intellectualization. Well, next it. time you come in, I might, I might do it in a South African accent. Who knows? You, you might have started a whole new trend with me, <laughs> a paranoia. <laughs> I'll be really excited to hear that. Yeah. Uh, well, look, that's, that's about it, man. Thank you so much for coming in here. This has been Pleasure. such a joyful chat. Oh, man, I've really enjoyed it too. It's been absolutely wonderful, Joseph. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, that's looking forward to our next adventure. Yeah, I mean, that'll be me coming into the... Uh, I mean, you've made a lot of promises today. I have, that's yeah. The, uh, that's the American bar. I want my little bit in the song and also for it to be in some sort of wacky accent. Crikey. Okay, well, I hope, I hope we're going to edit all those things out. <laughs> <laughs> we know. Oh, no. <laughs> all right. Well, look, thank you so much. 
I'm Cam Dawson, the UK brand ambassador for Jack Daniels Tennessee Whiskey. And first things first, let me tell you the story of how I ended up here talking to you all about Jack Daniels and the importance of storytelling. From anyone that can pick up on my accent, I'm not from Lynchburg, Tennessee, where every drop of Jack Daniels comes from. Not even close. Although I like to think that I'm from a similar sized rural village out in the sticks of Scotland. My Scottish home is surrounded by rolling hills, fertile ground where grains grow, babbling brooks and meandering rivers. Perfect conditions for making whiskey. In fact, that river separates the Highlands and Lowlands Scottish whiskey regions, and it's very picturesque. I was raised in a house that appreciated our national spirit, Scottish whiskey. But when it came to my first experience of tasting that golden nectar, the choice of whiskey may surprise you. It wasn't a dram from the nearest distillery to where I grew up, or even an extra old pour from an overly hard-to-pronounce Scots Gaelic-named distillery from an equally hard-to-pronounce Scottish village. It wasn't even from Scotland. It was none other than Tennessee's finest export, Jack Daniels. I remember the experience well, where I was, who I was with, the drink itself, and most importantly, that first sip. It was a dive bar in the closest town to where I lived. My friends and I were still new to drinking and hadn't progressed past the pints of lager stages yet. One of the group came back from the bar not with a pint, but a highball filled with a mysterious dark liquid and what I would come to recognise as a classic Jack and Coke foam fizzing on top. As it was out of the ordinary, it attracted a fit of questioning and with a knowing smile, he told the group that it was a Jack Daniels and Coke. To me, that was rock and roll in a glass. I'd seen that classic square bottle of Jack before, sharing the stage with many famous rock stars. That first sip sealed the deal, and it's been my drink ever since. It wasn't long before I was wearing that infamous Jack Daniels label t-shirt, long before I could jokingly say that it was my uniform. It sounds a bit comical when I retell that story now. Maybe it was a story that won the hearts of the Jack Daniels bosses and why they've allowed me to hang around so long. I say this with a touch of sarcasm, of course, but you know what? The story certainly helps. It's certainly a story in itself that a Scotsman is representing the best-selling American whiskey. This story is unique to me, but people will certainly relate to different aspects of it and perhaps make a connection with me and be more inclined to relate and retain that information. I, for example, relate to certain aspects of the Jack Daniels story, and that's why I fell in love with the brand all those years ago. Stories have been told for thousands of years, tens of thousands of years even. Primitive humans shared stories around the campfire and painted their stories on cave walls 64,000 years ago. We share stories to communicate, to educate, to connect. We share stories when people are born, when people get married, or even when people die. You'll also likely find a bottle of whiskey at those latter three, so whiskey and stories is a tried and tested formula. Today, I feel the importance of sharing the stories of Jack work on many levels. It's not just now that I'm a brand ambassador that I've become a storyteller. I was a bartender for 10 years before joining the team at Jack Daniels UK, and I made a point of always being able to share the stories of cocktails on my menu or the whiskies on my back bar, how they got their name or what was the inspiration behind their cocktail creation. This brought the customer a deeper connection to that cocktail or that glass of Tennessee whiskey hopefully meaning that their enjoyment of the drink would be on a new level. 
Being able to answer any questions or having a discussion about the drinks with my guests also increased my customer service. In the case of Jack Daniels, I'm pretty lucky that I've got over 150 years of rich history straight out of Lynchburg. Not only are these stories from the oldest registered distillery in the United States, but they're stories of the life of Jack and his ancestors that settled in Tennessee from Scotland in the 1700s. I share these stories with bartenders, whiskey fans, salespeople, anyone who'll listen, really. Depending on the guests, I may talk a little on Jasper Newton Daniels' humble beginnings in mid-1800s Lynchburg. That was Jack's real name, by the way. And to elaborate, he was the last kid of ten who left home at the age of six after a disagreement with his stepmother. This is always better than sharing the cold, hard facts, which are short and unromantic, and can be summed up with, Jack was a real guy. With a longer story, the picture that is painted is Jack was an underdog, and people love an underdog story. I could literally, and I do, speak for hours on the stories of Jack, his life, his whiskey, his death even. But to choose just one of my favourites, for time reasons, it comes straight from the distillery and marks the transition of Jack's ownership and the passing to his favourite nephew Lem after Jack's unfortunate and untimely death. It takes place in the early 1900s when Jack had just returned from a lengthy business trip. The same business trip where he won a gold medal for creating the finest whiskey in the world at the 1904 World's Fair. He arrived at the office a little earlier than usual, ready to get back to work and to catch up on the paperwork. However, he couldn't remember the combination of the safe containing the workbooks. However, he couldn't remember the combination to the safe containing the books. Time and time again, he tried the codes he thought it could be, but the safe handle wouldn't budge. Out of sheer frustration, he kicked the safe as hard as he could, breaking his left foot big toe in the process. Being a no-fuss kind of guy, Jack continued to work away and ignore the issue that was to become a bigger problem. Nowadays, that broken toe wouldn't be such a big issue. But this was the very start of the 1900s when medical science wasn't well known by stubborn southern men like Jack. And that broken toe was the start of a much bigger problem. Blood poisoning was to take hold and Jack had no choice but to amputate his lower leg to stop the spread. But it was too late. Jack unfortunately lost his life in 1911. The moral of that story? Never be early for work. This story always gets a whole range of emotions when you hear it at the home of Jack. Firstly, it tells us that Jack was a real guy, and it was he that started his company. Eyebrows are raised and people are impressed. Secondly, the sadness when they hear of Jack's passing often brings out an emotional reaction. Lastly, there is a touch of dark comedy with that moral of the story, never be early for work. And who can't relate to that punchline, right? Then there are some that like to hear a little more about the actual whiskey, its production, its terroir. I'll usually hide a little bit more facts into the story and describe the lay of the land in Lynchburg, Tennessee, with its rolling hills, fertile ground where grains grow, babbling brooks and meandering rivers. Perfect conditions for making whiskey. And that sounds familiar to my story of home, right? Well, that's my connection right there. Cheers. Thanks for listening to another episode of Bar Fabric Presents. If you've enjoyed the show, please share and leave us a review. As Joseph mentioned in four more bars, there will be an accompanying playlist where you can hear all of the tracks they spoke about. You can find the link to the Spotify playlist in the show notes, which also features some bonus tracks not discussed on the show. 
You can find more information on our guests in the show notes. And finally, a huge thank you to the team. I'm Ali Didienko. This podcast was recorded at Capsule 24 Studios in London and produced by Silver Music Entertainment.